You may be seated. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus is closing down on his earthly ministry, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. And you'll remember that there were 10 lepers that, uh, that encountered Jesus, and they cried out to, to the Lord. And, and you'll remember that the Lord directed them to go and to show themselves, present themselves to the priests there in Jerusalem. And you'll remember, by faith, they obeyed and they departed. And the scriptures told us that as they went, that they were healed. And so it was amazing miracle, these lepers that were healed. And, and one of them, when he discovered that, that he was healed, you remember that he returns back to the Lord and he falls down on his face and he worships the Lord. And, and you remember that in Jesus says, were there not in 10 lepers that were healed, but, but only one has come back to say thank you. And, and it was a great reminder to us as we bring our petitions to the Lord and as we come in prayer to the Lord for the things that aren't going right in our life, for the aid and the assistance that we need, that we remember to thank him to thank him for all of the things that are going right, to thank him for all of the blessings that we currently are enjoying. Think of how blessed uh, your life is. Think of how many things uh, you are thankful and grateful for, and all of that from the goodness uh, of God. And while God does want us to bring our petitions, he, he wants us to also be mindful uh, of how good and gracious and loving he is uh, toward us. You'll remember that one of the Pharisees then uh, asked uh, Jesus for a demonstration of the kingdom. Where is the kingdom? You say you're setting up a kingdom. Where is your kingdom? Where's your army? Where is everything? And you'll remember that Jesus said, you are not going to have a, a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God now is being presented to the hearts of men. And, and the kingdom now lies when a person receives in Christ into their heart. And there the kingdom now takes root and begins to expand. But he knew exactly what the Pharisee was wanting. He was wanting that demonstration of the reign of Christ, the Messiah, the prophecies of the Messiah are that he will rule and reign in righteousness and that he will establish a kingdom and his kingdom will have no end. And, and that will happen in the second coming not in the first coming. And so Jesus then begins to talk about that in second coming. And, and you remember that, that he instructed us and told us that the second coming of Christ, it is not going to be a private return. It will be a public demonstration as the lightning flashes from the east to the west. So also when the Son of Man comes, it will be a global, universal experience as the Lord returns. And, and as far as the timing goes, it will happen suddenly. When the Lord returns, it is going to be without warning. The Bible tells us that no man knows the day or the hour that he will return. And you remember that he gave two illustrations, the illustration of Noah and the illustration of Lot. And in both situations, before that judgment came, you remember that, that they were marrying and given in marriage and they were eating and drinking and life was going on uh, as normal. But then suddenly uh, the judgment fell upon them. And so the Lord's return. And, uh, and then he bounces back to, to the present. And he says, but anybody who is seeking to save their life is going to lose it. And anybody who loses it for my sake will save it. Well, what did he mean by that? And we talked about how the Lord was telling us that Jesus isn't somebody that we add to our life. He does not allow us to remain enthroned in our life, building our kingdom, and then asking Jesus to come and to join our kingdom and to help us build our kingdom. 
He says, if you try and keep your life, if you try and keep your kingdom and just add Jesus to that kingdom, you are going to lose the kingdom of God. But if you will surrender your kingdom, get off of your throne, enthrone Jesus, and now be a part of his kingdom, you will, in fact, inherit eternal life. As we move to this 18th chapter, Jesus is going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about persistence in prayer and how important that is. He's also going to talk about the attitude of our heart when it comes to prayer equally there. And we're also going to see how the disciples are, are going to try and move into crowd management mode. The, the crowds are getting enormous and the people are, are pressing in. And, and suddenly now, rather than helping people come to the presence of the Lord, they begin now to try and be a security force and keep people away from the Lord. And, and the Lord is going to rebuke them for that. And and to let them know that we're always to help people into the presence of the Lord. And finally, we're going to see this morning that there is a rich young ruler. He has got it going on. And he is going to come to Jesus and, and he's going to ask him an important question. Probably the single most important question that a person can ask. And that is, how do I enter into the kingdom of God? How do I inherit eternal life? And... And so the Lord is going to, to speak truth to him. And we're going to see how he responds then to the truth that now Jesus reveals to him. Let's jump into this 18th chapter beginning in verse 1. It says, And then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So the Lord tells us that we're to pray how? always, that we're to always be in a state of prayer. And I was thinking about that. How, how do you actually pray always? The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. And here we see the Lord tells us that we're to always be praying. It's like, can you come to dinner? No, I can't come to dinner. I'm praying. You know, I mean, how, how do you live your life and yet always be praying? And when I grew up, I, I was taught specific prayers and they were structured prayers and, and then I would say them in the morning when I got up and then I would say them at bedtime when I would go to bed. We would have different prayers for our meal time and so you had specific prayers and you had specific times of prayers and that was how I learned how to, to pray. But as I began to grow and understand that, that God doesn't want us to be limited to specific rote and prayers, limited to specific times of the day, that God wants to be interactive in our life and that God wants a relationship and that God wants real communion. He, he wants real dialogue. He wants a real conversation. Prayer is just simply a conversation with God. And so here it says that we're to be in a, a running conversation with God. And that is now uh, how I understand to be praying without ceasing. Much in the same way that, uh, that my wife and I have an ongoing, continuous conversation. And it, it keeps getting interrupted by various different things. And then, and then it's right back into the conversation. We have a, a text thread that we have. We text each other uh, during the course of the day. Some text more than others. And, uh, and some days there are more. And it's a back and forth. It's an ebb and flow. It is this continuous relational communication and entanglement into a oneness as we, as we do life together. And, and that's how I understand our relationship with God. He, he doesn't want set times that we come in with rote prayers. There's a place for set times and there's a place for structure. But God wants to be ingrained and intertwined and entangled into a, a, a oneness uh, with him to where we are in this constant state of communication with him. And, and so we see here Jesus exhorts us, encourages us that we ought to pray uh, always. In verse 2 saying, there wasn't a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So we're going to get a parable 
And, and here Luke already tells us the point of the parable, and that is that we are to pray always and to not lose heart. He sets it up with a judge and a widow, verse 3. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. So the setting is this judge. He is a corrupt judge. We know that in Jesus' day, there were many magistrates that were appointed by the Romans. And these magistrates, they were not interested in justice. They were just interested in leveraging their judicial position uh, into financial gain in their pockets. Whoever could offer the judge the biggest bribe won the case. And so it was very frustrating to have a judge now that you couldn't actually get justice from, but that he was just available for purchase. So you have an unscrewed judge. He doesn't care about God. He is not bound by any morals or ethics whatsoever. And he doesn't care about people. He is just in this for himself. And then you have this widow. And throughout the scriptures, widows and orphans represent the most vulnerable of society. We see not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, where there is a, a responsibility to look after and to take care of the less fortunate and the vulnerable that is here. In a world in which the bribe is the only way to have a voice, a, a widow would represent a voiceless person that has no ability to enter in and to offer a bribe in order to get her position uh, or a judgment for her. But notice that she's not interested in getting her way. She simply wants justice. She just simply wants what's fair and right to be done. But in a crooked situation where she doesn't have the ability to bring a bribe, she is helpless. And so she comes to this judge asking him to do the right thing. In verse 4 it says, and he would not for a while. He's not bound uh, morally before God, and she has nothing to offer him. He is not going to gain power or prestige or, uh, or a favor owed from a widow is not something that he was placing value in. So he saw no value in exchanging a judgment on her behalf from anything that he would receive from her. And so since uh, it was centered upon himself, and she had nothing to give him. He did not move. He was not moved by her petition and to give her justice. And, and so for a while, he does not. It says in verse 4, but afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continually coming she weary me. So here we see that he decides to now give her the judgment that she is looking for, not because it's the right thing, not because it's the moral thing, not because uh, she is going to be able to do anything for him, but just as simply so she stops bothering him. And so we see here that, uh, that his motivation now uh, is, is that he is growing weary of her. She uses her only weapon, the only weapon that she has, and that is persistence. Persistence is the weapon of the poor. When you have no other power, then persistence is your only weapon. And so she brings her persistence before this judge. Verse 6, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now, obviously, God is not an unjust uh, judge. But if an unjust judge will respond now to persistence, then how much more a great and a loving God will he respond to uh, his own people? God wants us to be persistent uh, in our prayers. Why does God want us to be persistent? Why does he want us to come and to continue to press in and to press in and to press in and to press in? 
Wouldn't it be easier if just he would just give us what we want? Certainly we're not wearing him down like this judge is worn down. God never gets to the place where he's like, oh, I'm so tired of you t- asking for that. Here you go. Just be quiet. Here's your donut. <laughs> you know, I mean, like a, a petulant child that, uh, that sits there and just continues to, to ask until the parent grows weary of the petition. God never, never does that. But yet we see that God does want us to be persistent in our prayer. Why? I believe the reason is because prayer changes us. The persistence of our prayer doesn't change God. We don't wear him down and doesn't change his heart. But persistence in prayer changes our heart. It helps us to distill in our life that which is just the chaff to, to what is the essence? What is it that you truly want? I can remember when our children were young and I would ask them for Christmas, what do you want for Christmas? And it was so funny when they were little, they would say something different every single day. It was whatever the commercial that they had just seen, that was the next thing that they wanted. Every day, it was something different. But as they got a little bit older, I can remember asking them, what do you want for Christmas? And they would say, this is what I want. And every day I asked them, they would say, Dad, why are you asking me? You already know this is what I want. Their hearts were focused. They had identified and purposed exactly what it is that they want. I think that sometimes our prayer can be that all over the place. It can be that just, you know, Lord, I want this, and the next day I want this, and Lord, help me with this, and help me with that. And, and, and our prayers can be all over the place. But the Bible tells us that God will give us the desires of our heart. What do you truly want? What do you want in earnestness that you are willing to focus on and identify and continue to ask God for. If this afternoon the Lord was going to meet with you and he said that I will give you one petition, whatever one petition, one prayer that you ask, I will give you. Do you know automatically, instantly, exactly what that petition is? Or would you need to stop and, and really pray through that and, and sift through your heart of all the different things? What is it that you truly want? Prayer. Sifting through the wants and the desires down to the earnestness of what is your heart? What is it that you are desperate. What do you earnestly want above everything else from the Lord? And then be persistent in that. This woman knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted justice in this situation. She wasn't asking for all different things. She was narrowed and laser focused and persistently bringing that one petition. God wants us to distill down to the earnestness uh, of what our heart's desire is, of what our cry is. And so as Jesus teaches us about prayer, pray constantly, keep a running conversation, but also focus on what is the most important and, and be persistent in that. And, and then Jesus, as he has been bouncing back and forth between the second coming and now talking about uh, today and in our hearts and lives today, between receiving the kingdom of God into our heart and the millennial reign of Christ that is going to be set up when he returns, we see that Jesus bounces back again to the future. The cross is in sight. Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to an end, and, and there is only so much that he is going to accomplish in his first coming, and everything else will be accomplished in his second coming. And, and verse 8 ends with a glance and prophetically to the future, and he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? As he is giving instruction in the parable about praying, he then jumps forwards to his second coming, to his return. And he asks an insightful question. He says, when he returns, when he comes back, will he find any faith here upon the earth? 
it's interesting. There is a theology, kingdom theology, kingdom now theology that, that tells us that we need to go out and evangelize the world and, and not, not until the entire world is evangelized is the Lord then going to, to return and reign over the kingdom that has been set up as we evangelize the world. But I want you to know that I don't see that lining up with Scripture whatsoever. The Bible says that in the last days that there's going to be a great apostasy that is going to take place. And an apostasy is a sliding away from the faith, a turning away from the faith. Jesus here asks the question, he says, when I come back, will there be any faith whatsoever? As we look at the world and the state of faith throughout the world, we look at Europe and we see how Europe has moved into what they describe now as post-Christian over there, they have incredible cathedrals and churches that are all over the land, but they are empty. And in fact, they are being purchased by Muslims and being turned into mosques over in Europe today. We look at the state of faith in our own nation and we see how our culture and our government is, is rapidly erasing God from the public consciousness. We have removed him from our schools. He is being taken out of the squares with no longer our manger scenes welcomed on government and property. We see even the monuments that our forefathers carved God's name into granite are now considered to be offensive and are being removed uh, from public squares. We see that our culture and our country is moving away from God. And I read this verse and it says, when I return, will I find uh, any faith upon the earth? As I look at what's happening in our nation, it, it tells me two things. Number one, it tells me that we are definitely moving into the end times and that the Lord's return is absolutely imminent and that is just one more of the fulfillment of the, the signs of the time. But the other thing that encourages me is that God always has his remnant. God always has his people who want to study the word of God, that want to worship God, that want to walk with God and want to remain faithful to him. And so I am encouraged by all of the people that still do worship God and love God and continue to grow in their faith. Verse 9, we see that in Jesus now, and gives the parable of our attitude of our heart when we come to pray. We are told how often we should pray, and that's without ceasing. We should pray always. And, and we're told to focus on what we really want to discern and to get to know our own hearts of, uh, of what it is that we are persistent, but also the attitude of our heart when we come and we petition God and we pray. And so he gives this parable. It says, verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So here we see that this is a warning against the churchgoers. This is a, a warning against those who are in church, that are worshiping, that are reading the word. And so there was a, a warning that our faith and our worship wouldn't turn into a self-righteousness within our hearts. He is going to give a dichotomy of two people as they approach God. They are the opposite ends of the righteousness scale that existed in the nation in Jesus' day. At the top of the righteousness scale, you would put the Pharisee. They were the ones that were working the hardest at, at keeping the law. And at the other end, the most unrighteous person representative that you could come up would be a tax collector. Tax collectors were, they were unscrupulous. They were as unscrupulous as the judges because the government sanctioned them to collect X amount. And that's what they had to turn in. And everything that they collected above that, they got to keep. And so it fostered an incentive for them to be crooked. And so they would just shake down people. The government protected them. And so the people just hated them because of, uh, of their thievery. It was, it was legalized thievery was what was going on. And that just 
bothered the people to no end. And so here we've got the most righteous person on the scale and the most unrighteous person. And both of them are going to come before God and they are going to pray. And so he speaks this parable now, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And as Jesus is teaching, you can just hear them going, boo, you know, he mentions the, you know, the tax collector. And then uh, it says, verse 11, and the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And, and here we see that, that as this Pharisee is praying, you, you realize that what he's really doing is he's giving a spiritual resume to the Lord. He, he's reciting all of his accomplishments before God, and he's extolling his features and, and the blessings that, that he has been to others. We we see that he is comparing himself to others and, and he is found to be at the top uh, of the heap. And so he comes to God expecting a reward, a reward because he's earned it, a reward to be blessed by God because he deserves it. Look at how hard I'm working. Look at how good that I'm doing. I got straight A's. Let's go get frozen yogurt. You know, I mean, I mean this is the attitude of the heart that he has when he stands before God. He has indebted God to bless him. Because he has worked so hard and because he is doing so good, God owes him the blessing. He has determined that he is righteous. He has compared himself to everybody else. And so, compared to everybody else, he looks pretty good and has considered himself to be righteous. That is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when you create the standard of righteousness and then apply it to everybody else and to yourself. And by that scale that you have created, you will always get a passing grade. The problem with it is that you are comparing yourselves to others with an artificial scale. You can always find somebody that's doing worse than you. No matter how bad you're doing, morally or otherwise, you can find other people who are morally further down the ladder than you. And so here, the standard that he is using is his own standard, and now by that standard, God is indebted to him. That is self-righteousness. When I have earned the favor from God that I expect to receive. In verse 13, it says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was beating his breast, a sign of sorrow. He recognized that he was a sinner who needed the mercy of God. The Pharisee wasn't looking for mercy from God. The Pharisee was wanting justice from God. He believed that he was justified now in receiving blessings from God. But here we see that, that this Pharisee, I mean this, this tax collector, he recognized that he was a sinner. And the last thing that a sinner who recognizes that they're a sinner wants is justice. The last thing that a guilty criminal wants, they never stand before the judge and say, I'm guilty, give me justice uh, right now. When they are guilty and when they are caught uh, and when the case is dead set against them, they simply go, I plead for the mercy of the court. I throw myself on the, the mercy of the court. Mercy is saying, don't give me what I deserve but give me grace that I don't deserve. It's asking for what we do not deserve, the mercy of God. And he falls upon the mercy of God. 
The reality is, is that both needed the mercy of God. Because both the Pharisee and the tax collector are great sinners before God. The Bible tells us that we all fall short, that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one person that is righteous before God. When we compare ourselves to God's perfect standard, every single one of us falls horribly short. And none of us can stand before God and say, give me justice. Give me justice for all that I have broken of your moral law. But every one of us, when we come before God, we say, I am sorry. We beat our chests and we say, please forgive us. I love the bumper sticker that says that Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. We're just forgiven. We've been forgiven of our sins. And so Jesus now continues with this parable. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, forgiven rather than the other. I want you to know that you would have heard an audible gasp. <gasps> Jesus just said that the Pharisee wasn't forgiven, but the tax collector was justified now and forgiven. He says, assuredly, I say to you, it was the one that cried out for the mercy of God that now received that forgiveness. And he goes on now to say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see throughout the scriptures how God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the person that exalts themselves uh, over others, God will humble him. But the person who humbles himself and comes to God with the right recognition of who we are before God, God will have mercy and will receive grace in the presence of God. In verse 15, we see now, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The crowds are large around Jesus and people are bringing their babies and wanting Jesus to just touch their baby and give a blessing on their baby. And, and the disciples are like, we don't have time for this here. Don't, don't bother Jesus by bringing a baby to him. And suddenly now they step in and they start to become crowd control. They get in between Jesus and the people. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to immediately correct that. I want you to know this is a warning to the church, that the church has no place getting in between the people and God. The role of the church is to undergird and to be the underrowers, the servants that help people into the presence of God. Throughout Jesus' ministry, they had been bringing people to Jesus. They had been facilitating Jesus' ministry to the people. But suddenly they now take a new role of separating people from Jesus. And instantly Jesus rebukes that. Uh, look at what he says. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. When a church wants you to be connected to them and they're more concerned about your relationship with the church and they are the ones that will now help you into the presence of God, that is when the church is out of place. Jesus says, let them come to me directly and do not forbid them. And then we see that he welcomes the children because they have the kind of faith and trust that is necessary for us to enter into the kingdom. He says in verse 17, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And so we come with faith and we come with trust. And that is what children exhibit so beautifully. In verse 18, we see that now the scene shifts and there is a certain ruler, it says, that asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
very wealthy, powerful young person. We call him the rich young ruler. Matthew's gospel and also Mark gives us details of him. He is young. He is incredibly wealthy, and he is very influential. He is a ruler. He has the whole ball of wax going on here in his life. And he has now assessed the future. As a businessman, he's probably thinking about leveraging his money and investments and where the market is going to go and how to stay ahead of it. And as he is forward-thinking, he also forward thinks on his own life, recognizing that at the end of this life, he will breathe his last breath at some point, and, and then what happens? Whether we have a lot of possessions or we have no possessions, every one of us will breathe a last breath. And so he thinks about that and, and has heard about Jesus talking about the, the kingdom. And so he comes to Jesus and, and he asks the single most important question that any person can possibly ask. And that is, how do I make sure that my name is in the Lamb's book of life? How can I make sure that when I die, that I will spend eternity in the kingdom of God, in the presence of God? And so he comes and addresses Jesus, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Good rabbi was never a title that anybody used in that day. Good implies sinlessness, a, a, a complete goodness. Only God is good. So when he comes and he says, good rabbi to Jesus, Jesus pauses for a second and focuses on the way that he addressed him. He says, are you in fact declaring that I am sinless? Are you in fact declaring that I am complete? Are you recognizing that I am the Messiah? Are you claiming that I am the Son of God? In other words, do you know who you're talking to? It's important when we come to Jesus that we recognize who he is. Who is Jesus? Is he just a teacher? Is he a good moral instructor? Is he a, a prophet or is he God? It's important to know who he is when you look at the words that, that he is saying. And so Jesus, before he gives them an answer, determines the parameters of their relationship and queries him on his approach of using good rabbi. But then he goes on to answer the question. He says in verse 20, You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments. You'll remember that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he had two tablets. On one tablet were the first four commandments. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The second six commandments deal with our relationship with others. Jesus, when he goes through the commandments with them, he bypasses the first four and goes right to the second half of the tablet. All of the relational commandments with one another. How have you been doing in your relationships with others? And he says, I have been doing well. We find that not only is he a rich young ruler, but he's a moral guy. He is a good guy. He's the guy that opens up doors for people, helps the ladies across the street. He is a genuine good guy. And so he says, I, I try hard in all of these things here. And, and Jesus now answers, verse 22. And so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. This man has everything. He's got riches. He, he has a, a righteous life. He has respect and prestige and power. And yet, Jesus says, you still lack one thing. In other words, there's one thing that's keeping you from entering into the kingdom of God. I want you to know in our lives, it doesn't matter if there's one thing or a million things that keep us from the kingdom of God, how tragic it is if we do not enter into the kingdom of God. 
He tells them, you're close. There's only one thing in your life that needs to get dealt with in order for you to enter into the kingdom. And he says to them, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. He says to them, there's one problem in your life. God is not in first place in your life. You have allowed wealth and the love of your wealth to enter into first place in your life. The Bible says that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we're to enthrone God into first position in our life. But we see that what has happened is this wealth, whether it was made by him or inherited by him, has now captured his heart. When he wakes up in the morning, his thoughts are about his wealth, how can he can protect it, how he can increase it, and how he can expand it. When he lies in bed at night, his thoughts are to his wealth, the strategies that he is going to make. And so what is in first position in his life is wealth. He's guilty of idolatry. And so that idolatry that was in his life was preventing God from becoming the Lord of his life. You cannot have two masters. And so you will either love the one and hate the other. You will despise the one and serve the other. And so Jesus says, you must tear down your idol. Idolatry must always be pulled down in our lives so that the Lord can assume the position in our life. And so he tells them, you need to get rid of it. That's what he said to this person. That was their idol. Does every person need to get rid of their wealth? No. Every person does need to get rid of their idolatry that is in their life. And so he says, once you tear down the idolatry that's in your life, you're going to be free. And who the sun sets free is free indeed. And now, he says, you'll be able to come and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven, but you'll be able to come and to follow me. But you can't have two masters. You can't have two in first position in your heart. And if God is not in first position in your heart, then you love the cares of this world. And so Jesus lets him know exactly what he has to do. Luke's gospel moves on, but Matthew and Mark let us know that the, that the rich young ruler says that he went away sorrowful. The truth that Jesus gave him was not truth that he was willing to, uh, to absorb at that time and to comprehend in, in any time. We move away from God. Anytime we go away from the Lord, we are going to be sorrowful in our life because we are heading in the wrong direction. As we close our study here, I, uh, I want to turn our attention for a moment back to verse 1. Back to where Jesus, it says, he speaks a parable to them that we always ought to pray and not lose heart. And it was the not losing heart that really kind of captured my attention. Discouragement and hope that leeches out of our life. It is one of the great tools of the enemy. The enemy wants you discouraged. And discouragement oftentimes comes when we're waiting on the promises of God. When we're waiting for God to do something, to move, to, to stand upon the promises of God and then, and then to be waiting for them to transpire and, and how difficult waiting is and how while we are waiting, the enemy loves to come in and to tell us that it's not going to happen, that that's never going to happen and that you should give up on it and quit on it. It is difficult in our lives to to wait. We can't control others and we can't control circumstances and there are situations and trials and hardships that, uh, that we are forced to endure that we simply have to wait. And it is in those times that the enemy so loves to come in and to bring discouragement. But here we see that Jesus tells us that we're to pray continuously and not lose heart. God is faithful. Amen? 
and we need to trust uh, God and to stand upon the, the promises. And I want you to know that waiting, waiting isn't doing nothing. Waiting is not the absence of action. Waiting is a verb. Waiting is doing something. What are you doing? I am waiting. And throughout the scriptures, we see men of God and women of God who have had to wait upon God. I think about Abraham and how God told Abraham, you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky. And yet and Sarah was barren and they had no child. And, and the years and the years and the years that they stood upon that promise from God. And there was no evidence whatsoever that anything was going to change and that they would ever have children. But they had to wait. And I think about the discouragement that they had to have gone through while they were trying to hold on by faith. But, but God ultimately did exactly what he said he would do. I think about King David. David. He's this young lad, and, and Samuel the prophet comes and anoints him as the next king over the nation of Israel. And what happens is his stock begins to go up. God's hand of blessing is upon the next king of Israel. But yet we see that, uh, that as David slays Goliath and, and as David then marries the king's daughter and as David becomes a captain in the army and, and God's hand is upon him and we see uh, him rising, that suddenly King Saul hears the song of victory that the people are singing. And the song of victory that they were singing is Saul has killed his thousands, but David his his 10,000. Oh, what? And suddenly now jealousy in his heart rises up and, and suddenly he begins to persecute David and David loses everything. And David now has to flee for his life, loses his wife, loses his family. He is out now in the wilderness being hunted by the army of Israel that he's supposed to be the next king over. And how many nights is he out there saying, God, what is going on? I thought that you said that I'm going to be the next king over Israel. And it was years and years and years that he is out looking up at the stars, being hunted and sleeping in caves in the wilderness, surrounded by, by misfits and other bandits that came and, and joined him together. Scholars estimate that it was between seven and ten years of waiting on the promise of God. And yet God ultimately vindicates David and he does become the next king over the nation of Israel and becomes its greatest king. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that the will of God for your life is never easy. Amen? Amen? Say that with me. The will of God for my life is never easy. It is not going to be easy. It isn't easy. You are called to be a soldier now in the battle between good and evil, and you have now taken boots up onto the battlefield. God's will will prevail, but it will not be easy. And we will come through stretches where we're going to have to wait upon the promises of God. But I want you to know that the waiting is not a punishment from God. God was not punishing Abraham. God was not punishing David. God is not punishing you while you are waiting. God works all things together for good. And sometimes when we're ready to, to move, it's like, come on, let's go. God, I'm ready. Can we get this show on the road? <sighs> but there's other people that are involved. And God is sometimes working in the hearts of others. And while you're ready, he is coordinating this heart and this heart and this heart so that everything is ready all at once for it to all come together. And he says, for you, I need you to now wait. And so waiting is, is a part of our life. And it's an action word. And so how is it that we should wait? 
when we do get into those places, we can't control others. We can't control circumstances. There are times when we just simply have to wait. But I wanted to encourage us with just, with just four suggestions of, of how we should wait when we are waiting. Number one, wait prayerfully. Don't just wait. Remember that waiting isn't the absence of action. Waiting is the determined, fixed purpose of waiting on the timing for God for his promises to come to bear in our life. And so how do we wait? We wait prayerfully. Continue to pray. Continue to press in. And so we want to constantly be praying while we are in a state of waiting. Secondly, wait patiently. Nobody wants uh, another Eeyore. Oh, God, here I am waiting, you, you know, just another day. I'm sure you're not going to do it today, so I'll just suffer in silence. <laughs> oh, not so silent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> God wants you to wait patiently. Be patient. God is moving, and God is moving at the perfect speed. I have found <laughs> that God is never in a hurry, or I want him to be, <laughs> God's never in a hurry and God's never late. He is timing everything together and we cannot see the unseen, but he does see the unseen. And so, just wait patiently. Wait prayerfully, wait patiently. Thirdly, wait expectantly. Trust in the Lord for the hope. God says that he will give us the desires of our heart. And when we come and when we are waiting and when we are now prayerful and when we are patient, we will see God's promises come to pass absolutely 100% they will come to pass. And so wait with expectation. Don't be discouraged and don't be hopeless. And finally, be persistent. Continue to press forward in your life and be persistent in the things that you are waiting on. And Jesus says to pray without ceasing. And to be persistent in bringing those petitions. And so while we're waiting, let's learn to wait well. It's not just checking out. It's not just the absence of action. It is being prayerful. It is now being patient. It is being expectant. And it is being persistent. And that is how we can wait well. For when we build our life upon the promises of God, they will most surely come to pass. And what God has spoken to you that he has said he will do, he will do. And we may need to wait for his timing in our life, but may we wait well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask God that you would just help anybody that is going through a time of discouragement where hope is now ebbing out, uh, Lord, may they fix a firm grasp upon your promises, Lord. And Father, may we not grow weary in well-doing. May we not tire, Lord. We do not expect your will to be easy in our life. But Father, there is nothing that is more worthwhile. Help us, Lord, to wait, to wait on you, and to wait well. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.